Hi there, and welcome back. This is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And I'm chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, one of the other partners. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, our weekly podcast. Elizabeth, um, here we are in a new year, and it strikes me that uh, one of the resolutions that you might have made, that I made, is I should be more charitable. Well, Robert, charitable and charitable planning means something different to everybody. I think anything you can do for other people is a great idea. I was thinking, actually, I should be nicer to people. But hey, I should also probably give more money to charity. Uh, and, and actually, one of the things that struck me is I've been listening to my favorite and I think your favorite radio station, and they keep saying uh, they're operated by a nonprofit, and they keep saying, um, uh, you can make a, a lifetime gift to us, and it has certain tax and estate advantages. What do they mean, tax and estate advantages, for making gifts to your favorite radio station or your favorite whatever charitable organization? So, Robert, I think that it that depends on your situation. So a benefit for one person may not be a benefit for another in the sense that there are certain assets, things like retirement accounts, like an IRA, that have special implications if you decide to make gifts from those types of assets during your lifetime or at your death. But particularly during your lifetime, there are some ways to make charitable gifts out of certain assets that can give you a little bit better bang for your buck when it comes to tax planning. I think that's probably some of what they're alluding to as it relates to the planning and charitable planning you might do upon your death. That is such a personal thing when we talk to people about legacy. And today, I think that most of what we want to focus on has to do planning during life, but some of what people are doing to plan for their death and, and what kinds of benefits can be be had at that point. I know that one of the kind of common themes that our clients uh, come to us with is that they're thinking they might want to leave some money to charity when they die, and they think that will give their estate some tax advantage. And of course, unless their estate is taxable, which in the current environment means a $12 million estate, there's no real advantage, no tax advantage to leaving money to charity. It's a very good idea, but you're not going to get any tax benefit from doing it. But there are some ways to get some income tax benefits from giving money to charity. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things that my radio station is trying to suggest. If you make the gift during your life, first of all, just straight up make a gift, you might be able to get an income tax deduction Although in the current income tax environment, even that is not so crystal clear. And Robert, I think when we look at the deduction, the standard deduction for most people has climbed considerably in the last couple of years. So previously, we saw people be able to itemize and take greater deductions when making gifts to charity than they can now, which is one reason that things like donor advised funds are particularly popular. But, you know, Elizabeth, one of the things you alluded to uh, that we really need to emphasize, one of the remaining really good things you can do if you have charitable inclinations is to direct your minimum distributions, your annual required distributions out of your IRA directly to a charity. Don't get the money and then turn it over to a charity because that's income to you and you might not get a deduction if you don't itemize. And Robert, I think you're alluding to somebody who would have a traditional IRA, correct? That, that's correct. It's There's no good reason why this is true. 
IRAs and 401ks and 403bs and all the other uh, uh, defined contribution retirement accounts are mostly the same, but on this question, they are not. This is only IRA holders who can, who can use this special provision. So if you have to take $3,000 out of your IRA next year, or this year, I guess it's the beginning of the year, so it could happen later this year, uh, and you also mean to give $3,000 to your favorite charity, well, why not just have the $3,000 directly paid from your IRA? Well, Robert, uh, what happens if I want to be the one to make the gift? I don't want to have Schwab sending a check to my favorite charity. What else can I do? Most custodians will send the check to you if you would like. It'll be made out to your charity. You can put it in an envelope and send it to, to them. You can let them know that it's a minimum distribution or it may not be clear from the check itself that it is. Uh, so you get to hold it as close to the vest as you want to. Now, be clear that this only works for people who have to take distributions. That means somebody who is 72 or older. Um, of course, if you were 70 and a half or older two years ago, that, those were the, the rules then. But hey, you'd be 72 now anyway. So only 72-year-olds have to take distributions and only IRAs qualify. But it's a great way to reduce your income taxes because that money that, that has to come out does not go through your, your 1040, your personal income tax at all. And Robert, this is one of the reasons that we're specifically talking about traditional IRAs as opposed to Roth IRAs, correct? Correct, because if you took money out of your Roth IRA, it wouldn't be income anyway. So the same rules don't work the same way for Roth IRAs. I think that sometimes is a finer point that can get a little confusing for people. So this is really a very narrow application, but it can yield a great benefit because, Robert, you don't have to just pick one charity. You could go ahead and let the custodian know that from your required minimum distribution, you want to divide that equally among 10 different charities. Yeah, 10 is, 10, unless you have a huge minimum distribution, restrain yourself. Well, Robert, we have to remember, too, when it comes to charitable giving, it can be a different path for everybody. Absolutely true. For some folks, you know, making a contribution of $25 a year is is really significant and is a change. I would say that I most of the folks that I work with, our clients, they do like having some personal interface with the, with the charity. So it does matter to them that they get to send in the check. I do have people, Robert, and quite a few actually, who do like to have some anonymity and like to make gifts that are anonymous. That can be a little more challenging when you have a custodian that will send a check directly to an organization because presumably your name will be on it. Um, in some cases, we have people who are doing, I, I could be described as a little more advanced planning using donor advised funds to maintain their their anonymity. So that's, I think, a terrific option for people who want to get a good bang for their buck and also remain anonymous. Because your donor advised fund, if you create one, establish one, can be named whatever you want it to be. And that's often one way that I think people who are making these annual gifts like to keep private. Right. And of course, there's anonymity and there's anonymity. You might want to 
not have the public know that you made a charitable donation to your favorite charity, but not care if the charity knows about it. So uh, anonymous gifts have at least two different flavors. Uh, but you're right, if you, if you want to be more sophisticated and more anonymous, one of the things you ought to be thinking about is something like a donor-advised fund. And you can name it the Panorama Fund if you want. I always use Panorama in my illustrations of trust names and donor-advised fund names. Uh, and I've never actually run across anybody who has used Panorama. So, so it's still available if you'd like to use it for yours. Elizabeth. Oh, well, thank you, Robert. But we actually, our trust is uh, named after a number of digits. So we have numbers in the name of our trust. And uh, we've you're decided. the 137295. That's exactly right. Not exactly those numbers. But yeah. it is interesting when we talk to people about their charitable planning and what makes them comfortable and, and what might be pushing some of the boundaries. When I talk to people who want to make larger charitable gifts at the time of their death but have not had a tradition of planning charitably during their lifetime, meaning they might once in a while write a check to an organization, but it's not part of their routine practice, I often encourage them to start practicing because the truth of it is, is if you've committed to leave some or most of your estate to charity or charities upon your death, gosh, it's really a good experience to make sure you know how the charity or the, the nonprofit organization, whatever you want to call it, is run. You know, how, how does their bookkeeping system work? Do you get a thank you note or an acknowledgement in the mail that you can provide to your tax preparer? Do you have questions about how they're going to be using the donation? Sometimes people wait until their death to make large gifts. And I say to folks, gosh, why don't you try it on for size today to really get to know the charitable organization? And if you're so inclined to make a gift that might be more focused to that organization, make sure that that makes sense to you. I think that many people, they're not quite sure how to get engaged in giving because they're worried they don't have enough to give. Well, I think that's just a misplaced concern. Any organization today is going to be pleased to have your involvement, whether that means a friendly call, attending a gathering, buying tickets to an event, doing something like making a gift from your IRA is also going to be something they're excited about. You know, one of the other things, as long as we're sort of talking about lifetime gifts and the effect on income tax, one of the other things you might consider in your particular circumstances is either a charitable remainder trust, a trust where you get the income off of the money for life, but the charity gets the, the remainder when you die. Uh, that money doesn't get to them until you die, but you get a present income tax deduction if you structure it properly for the, for the value, uh, the actuarial value of the gift that you're giving at your death. You can't then take the money back and say, I wanna cancel that. You have made a completed gift, but that's exactly why you get a deduction. Or maybe a charitable lead trust, which would allow you to have money go to a charity for a fixed number of years or for the rest of your life. Uh, and then on your death, the money can revert to your, or at the passage of years, it can revert to yourself or to your estate or to the individuals that you named. Um, either of those approaches might be a more comfortable way to do, as you say, Elizabeth, a, a little bit of a trial run with a charity to give them um, uh, some, some indication that you have charitable inclinations and you can find out how well they respond. 
And Robert, I think that hopefully after listening today, people can consider what feels what feels right to them. It is an administrative cost. There's administrative overhead when you have things like charitable remainder trusts or charitable lead trusts. That's not a bad thing. We, we administer a handful of those here in our office. But there are additional costs, um, not only tax preparation, but professional advice that people should consider when they're trying to figure out what kind of vehicle for charitable planning makes sense for them. Well, thank you. That was kind of a fun conversation about charitable giving. It's something that we very much support and encourage our clients to do. Uh, If you want to talk through any of those options, if any of that uh, piqued your interest, feel free to contact us, assuming, of course, you are listening from Arizona, because that's all we do is Arizona practice. We don't don't represent people who live in other states, um, even though their, their laws may be similar. We don't know for certain what the law is in other states. So we are Arizona lawyers. We are the law firm, the Tucson, Arizona law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. I'm Robert Fleming, and I've been chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, one of the partners, one of the other partners in the firm. We hope you'll join us next time for Elder Law Issues.